Welcome. We're so glad to have you all here. This is our fourth and final week of our uh, inaugural Theology Matters course called The Bible Says It That Settles It with a question mark. Uh, good news, no final exam today. Uh, you all have passed the course with flying colors. Um, many of you have been here for all four weeks, and for that, uh, I'm grateful. Um, and uh, you will receive bonus points uh, for that at some later time. Uh, for those of you who have been here only one week or two or three, I guess if you've been here three, you've been here all the weeks. Anyway, if you've missed a week, no problem. All of the, the, uh, the videos and audios, I think now are all up to date online. So if you want to go back in and fill in a lesson or if you've forgotten something or just need a good uh, late night rerun to watch, you will find them on the web and I think on the app. Uh, although I haven't checked the app recently to make sure that they're there. Um, so welcome, thank you. I'm glad that you guys are here. There's uh, plenty of food in the back. I've only half-jokingly said that we are not leaving tonight until the food is gone. Um, so get up and get some if you would like. Uh, there's coffee, there's two decafs and one regular. I, I was standing in line one time. Uh, I come from the Northeast and there's Dunkin' Donuts all over the place in the Northeast. Uh, and I was standing in line behind a dad and a real little itty bitty one and the dad, um, someone right before them ordered decaf coffee. And a little kid asked his dad, uh, Daddy, what's, what's decaf? And the dad said to him with a straight face, that's when they ruin coffee. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, the hour is late so we have decaf coffee and help yourself to that if you wish. Um, I have a few words of just to kind of uh, get us started, but let me pray first as we enter into our last week together. God, we're grateful for the time to gather. We're grateful for minds to think, um, for voices to proclaim, for education to teach, and for hearts to follow. Uh, we pray that you would encourage us, you would enliven our souls, you would uplift our minds, and you would further our walk with you as we study and live and believe together in community. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, um, I've mentioned uh, the food, the most important part. Um, there are a couple handouts on your table. It is uh, pedagogically unsound to give handouts that you're going to use at the end of a lecture, at the beginning of the lecture. Um, but you can let them lie for now. There, there's basically a, a one little uh, a set of pages that's a resource. And I'll say more about that at the very, very end, but that's kind of a little takeaway if you're interested in this topic and want to read more. Um, you'll have the chance to do so uh, through those resources. There's all, we're going to have a course evaluation. I have course evaluations in every class I teach at Columbia. And so we're going to do a course evaluation today. Uh, so I'm going to stop. Um, with about five minutes to go to allow you just to give me some feedback. I take it seriously, um, in part because I want these classes to be as useful and uh, as well positioned in life as a church as possible. So there'll be a chance for you to say some things specifically about this class and your experience of it, but there's also a chance just to tell me, is Wednesday the right night to do this? Since you're here, kind of maybe, but we're up for grabs on, on when we host these, how long they are, what time of night, is 7.30 too late, is it too early, are Wednesdays better than Tuesdays? I just would love to hear from you. I can't promise that we will find a time that works for everyone, but I will promise that we will have thoughtful conversations uh, and make decisions that make the most sense uh, for most people. So I uh, covet your feedback and... Um, uh, and, and hope for uh, 
to, to respond well to that. I want to mention also by way of um, infomercial, our next Theology Matters course, this is a little bit of a change up, our next Theology Matters course is in January. Uh, tentatively, we are planning on Wednesdays, 7.30 to 8.45, but that might be subject to change depending on your all's feedback. But the topic of the course is the Ten Commandments, Canon, Culture, and Christian Ethics. This is also part of this year-long series um, that's, that's thinking about the Bible and culture and controversy. The Ten Commandments are arguably one of the most central texts in the Judeo-Christian tradition, but they're texts, surprisingly, that are poorly understood. That is, we know they're important, but we don't always know what they say, let alone what they mean. And they're also texts that have been points of controversy. Uh, to name just one example, there are controversies about whether the Ten Commandments should or should not be displayed in public settings. We're actually going to talk about that in a good amount of detail during our first session. That's the sort of thing we're going to look at. So at the end of that January course, you're going to come away, I hope, knowing a lot more about the Ten Commandments, what they meant in their original context, and how later biblical authors interpreted them and applied them to later situations. That's kind of the ethics part of the course. But you're also going to have, hopefully, a better sense of what role these things play, not only in the church, but in broader culture. So we'll, we'll wonder about whether they should be publicly displayed. We'll wonder about whether they're relevant today, or at least some of them. Some of them we probably think are relevant, but others, maybe not. And we'll, we'll raise some of those questions uh, together in this course. I love this course. I love this little Lego Moses uh, with his Ten Commandments. Um, he hasn't broken them yet. I think this is the first set. So he looks a little stern. I think he's on his way down. Uh, he's heard about the Golden Calf incident, and he's on his way down. He's a bit angry at this point. Um, so, uh, so I hope you'll consider joining us for that class. It's one of my favorite subjects. Um, and I've taught a whole semester on Ten Commandments at Columbia, and that was a lot of fun. Um, so we'll condense that into, into four uh, short sessions. Okay, so that's enough for the infomercial. Very quick review. We started this course with a bumper sticker. It's a weird place to start a course, I admit, but we started with a bumper sticker. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. My thought going into this course is that we've, if, whether we've seen that bumper sticker or not, we've heard of that sort of statement. Now maybe that statement has taken different forms or something like that, but we've heard that sort of idea about the Bible. My second thought is that many of us, when we hear that, the Bible says it, that settles it, Many of us think, oh, that's probably not exactly right. There's probably a little more complicated story to tell. It's probably not so easy as just the Bible says it, that settles it, no questions. We all probably have some intuition that, that, that more needs to be said. But my third presupposition is that we don't always know what to say and that we find ourselves in a bind. We, either, we find ourselves either having to distance ourselves from that sort of bumper sticker and kind of as we do so, we end up distancing ourselves from the Bible. We have to say, ah, oh, it's, just, it's just myth. It's just legend. It's just story. It does, it's not true. It's not historical, right? We have to kind of get away from it because we know it's more complicated. Um, or somehow we have to uh, double down on that statement and say, yeah, this is how it is. And, and it's not any more complicated than this. And I think both aren't the best alternative to either leave the Bible or to only have a, a relatively simplistic understanding of how the Bible works. 
So the goal of this course all along then has been to lay out a set of ideas, I've called them theses, I'm not sure that that's the best term, but that's a term I've worked with, in part because I'm thinking of Luther's theses on the Wittenberg door um, uh, some almost 500 years ago. But anyway, we've had these theses or ideas about what the Bible is, what's the nature of its literature, and how we might go about interpreting it. And the idea is, as we've kind of talked through these 12 theses, we all get something of an introduction to biblical interpretation. We get a much larger bumper sticker, and therefore we need a much larger car. And I'm okay with that. Not larger cars, but anyway. Um, anyway, we have to have a more robust statement about how we interact with the Bible. That's hard work. Let me just advertise. This course is trying to make it harder for you to interact with Scripture. One of my New Testament professors at Candler said, uh, to proclaim, Leanne said this today in her inaugural speech at Columbia, uh, to proclaim the word of God today is difficult and not for the faint of heart. And yet we must do it. And yet this scripture is our scripture. It's our word of life. I'm not willing to let that go. I'm not willing to say somehow Christianity is no longer as deeply embedded in the Bible as it always has been. And yet we need to do a little more work in thinking about what the Bible is and thinking about how we might interpret it. That's the course in a nutshell, okay? So far we've done these seven theses. Um, I won't read them, save a little bit of time, but you've either been here for all of them or part of them. They're the seven um, that we've gone through so far. Now, if you're even half decent at math, there's a problem here. I've taken three weeks to do seven theses, now I've got one week to do five. Um, that means I need to go a little faster this week. Some of that was intentional, some of that is, um, I'm in an ongoing dispute with the person who designs my curriculum about how long or how much you can actually do in 75 minutes. Um, he is on probation and might be fired uh, as the course goes on. Uh, it's, it's tense, it's tense, especially, he lives in my house too. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult relationship. But I am optimistic that tonight, in the next, okay, <laughs> 65 minutes, that we're gonna do the last five theses. The reason I'm hopeful for that, um, is that the last three go together in many ways. You guys ready? All right, let's do it. Last, last five. So we got to get to thesis eight. So here's a question I love to ask first-year seminary students when they come to take my Old Testament class. Is Jesus in the Old Testament? Good answer. Yes and no. It's complicated. Yes and no. Well, it depends, of course, what we mean by is Jesus in the Old Testament. He doesn't just pop up like that. I mean, that's not what I mean by Jesus being in the Old Testament. Oops, I popped him up too many times. So I don't just mean like, surprise, there's Jesus on every page. That's not the sort of question we're asking. I think if it were, we'd probably say, not really. He's not in it that way. If we mean, is the word Jesus said in the Old Testament? Is the name Jesus said, can we find that the equivalent of Jesus in Hebrew in the page of the Old Testament, well, that's sort of easy as well. The answer is no. Jesus' name literally does not appear in the Old Testament itself. He's not a character in any story. You can't turn to any book of the Bible and say, oh, there's three characters here. There's David, Bathsheba, and Jesus. You all know that that's not the case, right? And if, that were, if it were as simple as that, then we could just say no and move on. But we could ask another question that makes it a little bit more complicated. Does the Old Testament refer to Jesus? 
Now that's a little bit of a different question than is Jesus in the Old Testament. That is, is his name in the Old Testament? Is he a character? Does the Old Testament, or maybe even better yet, can the Old Testament be read in a way that refers to Jesus? It certainly has been and often is. For instance, um, take the book of Isaiah. So this, I would graphically represent this differently, right? It's not that Jesus is popping up out of the pages of the Old Testament, but maybe this old Isaiah scroll, that scroll from Qumran, can be read in a way and understood in a fashion that points to Jesus. Consider just three passages from that book of Isaiah that we have here. And I'm sure you've all heard of these in reference to Jesus. We've talked about the first one already. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. Often thought to point to the virgin birth. Isaiah 43, a great text. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Talking in the New Testament about John the Baptist, preparing a way for Jesus in the wilderness. Then Isaiah 53, 5, a suffering servant psalm. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. Is this his? Jesus. Does that refer to Jesus? That's a trickier question. doesn't say Jesus, but can we read that in a way that refers to Jesus? What do you all think? It has, so it has been. So we can make a historical statement, get ourselves off the hook a little bit, and say, I've heard it done that way. It has been. Let, let's come back to that. I'm not saying that we should not want to do that. Let me just be clear with that. I haven't made any statements yet about what I think is the case. So Messiah, so maybe this is a reference to the Messiah, and Jesus is the Messiah, so therefore, maybe it's a two-step process in that way. I like that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's a great, a great text for Advent. Okay. So hold that. That's good. Susan? Uh-huh. Okay, good. So you're fleshing out, Susan, your yes and no yeah. from earlier. You're saying maybe there are different perspectives from which we can approach the Bible and actually answer this question differently. Remember our three, for those of you who were here last week, remember our three worlds of biblical interpretation? Was that last week or two weeks ago? It was last week. Um, so maybe from the historical world, we would answer it one way, but from the theological approach, we might answer it differently. I like where you're headed. And just well, let me get one more on this. Yeah, Brian. Well, I was going to just kind of expounding upon that idea when the author of the book of Isaiah wrote it, yes. he may have been referring to a contemporary book. Yes. But the inspiration came the apostle. Great. So, so I think you all are circling around actually a really sophisticated response to this what is quite a challenging question. Let me put a little bit more flesh on it. Um, from a strictly historical perspective, from a strictly historical perspective, the answer is no. 
The answer is no. Now, I'm going to qualify that in several different ways in a moment, but let me just say what I mean by that first. What I mean by the historical perspective is this. The original authors, in this case Isaiah, say, did not think that they were writing about the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. They were writing about the God they knew as the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They thought they were writing about the God who revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh. They thought they were writing about the God who delivered the Israelites out of slavery. They were thinking about the God who uh, established his people in the land of Canaan and raised up judges and kings and prophets and priests. They thought they were talking about that God. Now, from a historical or from a, a, a different, a, a kind of a, a hindsight perspective, a theological perspective, we say, yeah, that is God. That is the God we know in Jesus Christ. But that's not what they were thinking in the moment. They were writing about things that their readers would have known and understood in the here and now. In other words, to read Isaiah, let me go back, to read Isaiah 40, verse 3, in Isaiah's context, and to fully understand it, to not just think, these are crazy words, this is a puzzle that I know nothing about. You could do that. People could understand Isaiah's words in the, I don't know, 7th century-ish BCE, and it would make complete sense, even if you had no idea about the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, 700 years later. In other words, these prophets had a message that was relevant in the then and there of ancient Israel. So in that historical sense, the Old Testament's not referring to Jesus. But one might object. Let me anticipate this objection. Isn't it possible that Isaiah's words about the young woman, say, who would be with child, isn't it possible that they really were about Jesus all along and the prophet just didn't know it? Or maybe we would say, isn't it possible that there's a double meaning? I think I have some. Yeah, or what, what's that, Susan? It fits. It fits, right? So, so wasn't it possible that uh, in God's inspiration of the text, there was a double or hidden meaning? So the author was writing about something in the here and now. So that made sense. That's the first meaning, the surface meaning. But through God's spirit of inspiration, the text always had implicit in it a second meaning, a double meaning, a meaning that was, for all intents and pur purposes, absolutely hidden to Isaiah and his readers, and yet would only become apparent to, to readers after, uh, after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that possible? Well, sure, it is. And maybe it's even probable. But, but let me just say, I, I think there are some problems with it, or at least that's not my go-to explanation. And here's why. First, I think it potentially reduces biblical authors like Isaiah to mere courtroom stenographers. You know what a stenographer is? They just, they just record everything. It's not their writing. They're hearing stuff. They may not even be understanding what they're hearing, but they're just recording it, right? They're not even looking at what they wrote in a way, or they're not trying to understand it. It's as if we understand inspiration as God somehow communicating information in spite of the biblical authors, not through them. So Isaiah didn't get it, right? He didn't know what he was writing about, or he only kind of knew what he was writing about. God knew, and God was kind of working behind the scenes 
to encode this secret message about Jesus into the text. To me, I think that actually the church has never thought about biblical authors that way as courtroom stenographers. So I think there's a potential problem there. The second problem is that it fails to recognize that the words of the Old Testament functioned as scripture in a meaningful and authoritative way to the people of God long before Jesus existed. That is, if we say that there's a double meaning or a hidden meaning and these people just didn't know it for hundreds of years, we actually are trying to say scripture wasn't scripture then. Scripture wasn't the authoritative word of God to Isaiah and his people and the people of Israel because you know what? They didn't understand it. They couldn't understand it. If we have that view of scriptural meaning, I think it can chip away a little bit at our view of authority, and I don't love that either. Third, and this is the most important one, I think sometimes the idea that there's this double meaning in the Old Testament, um, it comes from the fact that we as Christians think that we need to read the Bible as Christians. I firmly agree with that. We as Christians do need to read the Bible as Christians. We need to read the Bible, every last letter of it, including the Old Testament, through a Christological lens, that is, through our knowledge and experience of Christ as the risen Lord. But here's the thing. Reading the Bible as Christians does not always mean that we read the Bible Christologically. We also believe in a trinity, last time I checked. And so why not read the Old Testament from a Trinitarian lens rather than a strictly Christological lens? Then we could go back to our Isaiah passages and say, yeah, that's referring to God. The God we know is God the Father. Or yeah, that is referring to the God we know. It's God the Holy Spirit. In other words, if we take a Trinitarian perspective as, a, as opposed to a Christological one, we can read the Old Testament, we can read it from our faith perspective, and not find Jesus as a double meaning in every verse. Does that make, let me pause here, because that's a, that's, that's a, there's a couple big ideas there. I've got one more thing to say, but let me pause. Susan? Absolutely. And, and that there are times when you read it and you're going to read and interpret as a Christian one thing out of it, and another time you're going to read it based on your own personal circumstances, and you're going to read something else in that same text that's going to speak to you very differently. Absolutely. And that is the mysticism that surrounds the Bible. Yeah. I think mysticism could be one word for it, but there's other words described. That, that is, that's how the church has always read Scripture, is through those multiple layers. We talked about this last week with the two or four, fourfold approach to scripture. So I think, I think that's part of the right track. Yeah. Yeah, that's really nicely said. And one thing I just want to encourage you is that you can be fully Christian and fully Christian about how you read the Bible and not find Jesus under every rock in the Old Testament. That's really the thing I want to encourage you with. Uh, and there's a couple reasons why, but that, that's, that's for me, is the takeaway. Yeah. Isaiah 50. Yes. What, what is the near-term meaning there? What do you think the 
the, the in the wilderness thing? No, the suffering servant. Oh, the suffering servant one. Yeah, that's particularly challenging. Um, there's a couple possibilities. He could be talking about Israel itself, the nation, as the suffering servant. It could be it could be talking about the king of Israel as the suffering servant, or it could be talking about some other figure in Israel, um, not the king, not necessarily a priest, not a prophet, who is suffering on behalf of the people. Who or what that is, I am at a loss to say. Um, but I think it's it's someone then. And I think the context is the exile. Um, in other words, there's good reason to have been suffering. Israel had plenty of suffering at that time. And so I think it's talking about the, that immediate context. Though it is admittedly not clear who it is. Yeah. And he still, I may have still considered a prophet. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's right, and I want to qualify that in a second, but yes, I mean, this idea that prophets are only future tellers, we talked about, I think, already in the second week, that that's not the primary role of prophets in the ancient world. We've kind of gotten that misconstrued a bit. Great. So this is the last important point. That's a perfect transition to the last point I want to say about this. Um, oh, here's kind of the conclusion, then I'll fill it out. The Bible is a Christian book, indeed. We, we fully own that. But it need not always be read Christologically. But here's the caveat to that. So I started with a point, I made a caveat. Now this is a caveat on the caveat, which brings us back to the original point, if you're following at home. Um, when did it start? Well, it started with Jesus. Right, so, the, so, here's the, so here, if you get the contrasting thing I'm saying, the Bible doesn't refer, the Old Testament, from a historical perspective, does not refer to, the, to Jesus. Um, it doesn't need to, in order to make sense. I don't think there's this, this double meaning in the Old Testament that the, the readers of the passage didn't get. And yet, and yet, from the very, very beginning of this thing called Christianity, we have been reading the Old Testament in light of Christ, in very meaningful ways. Jesus is a great exemplar of that. Jesus continually in his teachings, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, is using the Old Testament to explain and relate his teachings, his life, his experiences to the Old Testament. Paul follows suit. If some of you were here for the summer series, uh, Echoes of Scriptures and the Letter of Paul, you'll know that the New Testament letters that we call uh, Pauline are soaked through with Old Testament. And it's not just for kind of quaint historical uh, uh, framing, right? Pa Paul is using the Old Testament to talk about Jesus. There is absolutely no doubt that that's happening. The early church fathers do absolutely the same thing. From Tertullian to Augustine to Anselm, they all are reading the Old Testament in light of Christ and saying they're, they're using the Old Testament to talk meaningfully about Christ. But this is precisely where I want to draw the distinction. Jesus, Paul, and the early church readers of Scripture are not saying that Jesus is in the Old Testament or that the, or that the Old Testament talks about Jesus, but they are using the Old Testament to talk about Jesus. Catch that really small difference. They're not saying the Old Testament talks about Jesus, but they're using the Old Testament to talk about Jesus in a meaningful, authoritative, theological way. 
here's, I've already mentioned this, I think, briefly before, but here's a great, I think, modern-day example of this, where I think we get it here, and I just want to suggest that the same thing is happening uh, with our uh, Christological reading, readings. The, the very spot where Martin Luther King was assassinated, outside of the Lorraine Motel, stands a plaque quoting Genesis 37, 19 to 20. And it, it is the story of Joseph. It's the beginning of the Joseph story. They said to one another, this is the brothers, Behold, here cometh the dreamer, KJV. Let us slay him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Now, here's the question I like to ask uh, seminary students. Is Genesis 37 about Martin Luther King? No. But could you use Genesis 37 to speak in a meaningfully, a meaningful, historical, symbolic way about real things in Martin Luther King's life and real things that have flown out of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life? Absolutely you can, right? Because he was echoing, right? Um, so no one would get confused and think Genesis 37 is about Martin Luther King Jr. But on the other hand, no one would quibble, I think, about using this verse to help talk in meaningful ways about real things in a real person's life. That's what I think is happening. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, when Paul quotes the Old Testament, when the early church fathers quote the Old Testament, they're using a text that was sacred and authoritative to them to talk about the person, work, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a meaningful theological way. They knew historically that this wasn't the case, but they also knew theologically it was imperative to use the Old Testament to talk about Jesus. That's it. I am parsing very finely here, y'all, and I think you can get it, but it's, it, this is an important distinction. This is a really important distinction to make in the life of the church. Absolutely. So as to maybe pull the, the Jews along with, with the Christian approach. It didn't work. And I think at least our traditional approach has always been, let's go back into the Old Testament and show mm -hmm. you what we think foretells mm -hmm. Jesus mm -hmm. and show that to you so that you'll be able to believe like we do. Mm -hmm. It didn't work. The split happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, would, I completely agree with that. I wouldn't want to use the language of predict because I think that's falling back into that historical. It's putting the weight historically. But it seems that, that some, of, some of our oh. earlier people, in, in, even in those days yeah. after Jesus' final yeah. departure, wanted to be able to build a bridge and to say, look, he did it. Yeah. I think that's right, although, again, I, I'm, I'm parsing very finely, and I agree with you 98.2%. That 1.8% is that I don't think Paul, Paul's wanting to make a bridge. Paul, because look, the early church could have said, the Old Testament's not ours, right? They, it could have been a really easy decision here, just say, yeah, that's their stuff. Here are our sacred scriptures, right? That's the easiest thing to have done. The church chose the hardest path forward in, in absolutely affirming the Old Testament mattered. 
But what I think they were doing is not saying, look, the Old Testament predicts this Jesus. I think they're saying, look, we believe that this Jesus, through a Trinitarian perspective, is of essence the same as the God of the fathers, as the God we know through the Holy Spirit. I think they're making kind of a, a, a claim about the kind of the plurality and unity of God more than just a foretelling thing. I, th- I think they think, yeah, Jesus is there already because Jesus is there in the Trinity and the God of Moses is a God in the Trinity. And do you see what I'm saying? It's, I don't think they're just saying, if this is a God to come, they're saying this God has always been there. And it's the Trinitarian God that we know and are going to affirm in our councils. But I think we're mostly saying the same thing. So, Okay, let's move on. Um, thesis 9. For those of you who are in the summer series, this is a bit of a redux of some stuff we've done before. So hang with me if you've heard this before. And, uh, and I'll say more about that in a second. The ninth thesis is one of the most important ones. How we construe the, who we are affects how we read. Right? We can do all of this stuff about interpretive methods. We can do all of this stuff about three worlds, literary genres. History, all these things, but when it comes down to it, even with all of that, different people read the Bible differently. That seems like such an obvious statement to make. But it's an important one because the bumper sticker really doesn't account for it. In fact, the bumper sticker absolutely says it doesn't matter who you are because when the Bible says something, that settles it. And I don't care if you're um, Paul or Silas or Susan or Florida or Doug or whoever. It all says the same thing, and it all settles things in the same way, and we know, just because we've had life, that that's not the case. Maybe even spouses read the Bible differently. Maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not looking in any directions of spouses here. Uh, But maybe it's even possible that people in the same household could read the Bible differently, and not because one of them is a bad interpreter, and one of them is a good interpreter, or one's been to seminary and one hasn't or one, you fill in the blank. Another way of saying this is that we all read the Bible through a certain, I'm going to use a seminary term here. We all read the Bible through a certain hermeneutical lens or hermeneutics. Now, again, I want to ask the people who were here in the summer and got led through this and know some of the punchlines to (laughs) not spill the beans. (laughs) But what is hermeneutics? Have you all heard that word before? Juanita, what is, I'm seeing you shake your head. What is it? Okay. <laughs> I'm not volunteering to answer. I've just said I've heard of it. <laughs> well, it's a way of interpreting. It's a way of interpreting. But it's not methods, right? Because there, there's two things we can mean by interpretation, right? We can mean methods. We can, you know, historical methods, theological methods, to use some other seminary terms, text criticism, literary criticism, social scientific criticism, right? We can go through these very kind of detailed scholarly approaches. That's part of interpretation, but hermeneutics is another part of interpretation. Uh, Say it again. Okay, it is relating to preaching. It's not the same thing. The seminary term we use for that typically is homiletics, but that's on the way towards the answer, because when we preach, we're not just using a method of interpretation. We're trying to make a connection between what the text says and some community. So that gets us closer to hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, or Herman who, as I ask my students, um, it's all of the c- 
cultural, it should say, historical and life experiences that shape how we read a text. That is, in spite of or alongside of all of our methods, all of our good knowledge of the Bible, all of our commentaries and study aids, who we are, what we've experienced. Did you grow up Catholic? Did you grow up Southern Baptist? Have you been a lifelong Presbyterian? Did you grow up rich? Did you grow up poor? Did you grow up in the South? Did you grow up in the North? Those sorts of things can, though not always, have the potential to shape how we read things differently. Okay? Now, the church has always understood this. We've talked about it. Contemporary uh, uh, theological discourse talks about hermeneutics, but we typically talk about it with respect to particular reading groups, people who are said to read the Bible out of a particular, sometimes ideological interest or some other interest. So we talk about things like feminist hermeneutics, a feminist perspective informing how we read scripture, or an African-American hermeneutics. How, do we, how is scripture read by communities of African-Americans who've experienced life differently than some of us? Post-colonial hermeneutics, how have, um, this would be of interest to the international class in many ways, it's how do we read the Bible along with people who have been the subject of Western domination? and colonization. They read the Bible differently, y'all. Really differently. Those stories about Israel, or the Israelites conquering the land and driving the native inhabitants out of the land sound really different to people who have been the subject of Western colonization than they might sound to us. There's ecological hermeneutics. How do we read the Bible out of a concern for the environment? A pressing need in the church today, I think. How, or missional hermeneutics. This is something um, that we'll talk about here in this church quite often. How do we read the Bible out of a concern for mission, for outreach, for the growth of the church, for connecting to communities? All of these are very valid approaches. Uh, a feminist reading or a missional hermeneutical reading does not exhaust the meaning of the text, but it offers us a lens to read through it. Now, you might be saying this. Okay, sure, that's all hermeneutics. I don't fit in any of those categories. None of them describe how I read. So, so don't I just read through a clear lens? If all of these are lenses to look at, aren't those the colored lenses, the, lens, the shaded lenses, and aren't my lenses the clear lenses? Let's do a little experiment. Now here again, it is imperative that my summer folks uh, play along here. I'm going to give you a test. I'm going to give you a test about thoughtful biblical observation. You're going to see a video. On this video, there's going to be two teams of people. Uh, one team has white shirts, one team has black shirts. Each team has one basketball. They're going to be passing this basketball back and forth. The black team will pass to the black team. The white team will pass to the white team. You have one task, and it's not so easy because they're weaving in and out of each other as we go. Count how many times the white team passes the ball. It's a short video, 30 seconds or so. Count how many times the white team passes the ball. In my experience, only about 60% of the people can count correctly. So let's try to get you into 60%. If you've seen the video, just be cool. Okay, so remember, count. 
Oh, no, 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 no. It always happens at the worst time. OK. No, find it, find it. No, there, I promise you there's a signal. OK. So count how many times the players wearing the white pass the ball. You guys ready? OK, here we go. And we need, because this takes a lot of concentration, we need utter silence throughout. Utter silence. Okay. Very serious about this. Okay, let me get a raise of hands. How many, how many times does the white team pass the ball? 13. Oh, there's a big difference already. 13, 16, Doug. 16, 17, 18, 15. This is wonderful. We've got a range of answers. Um, let me reveal the pro let me prove the correct answer. This is great. This is great. All right, so how many got 16? How, okay, how many didn't get 16? I think, okay, I think our numbers present accurately, especially if some of you didn't raise your hand if you didn't get it right. So, now here's my question. For those of you who got 16, you might be feeling pretty good about yourselves at this point for your good observational skills. Of you 16, of, of those, how many saw the gorilla? How many saw the gorilla? I want to see him high. How many saw the gorilla? No, no, no. If you've seen the video before, that you're not counted. How many got 16 and did not see the gorilla? How many just did not see the gorilla in general? Do you believe me there was a gorilla? It wasn't small. Let's watch it again. Oh yeah, okay. And how many, okay, if you, if, okay, for those of you who's, no, why'd you do that? For those of you who have, who spotted the gorilla and got 16, you're probably feeling really great about yourselves at this point. How many of you saw the curtain change color? The curtain change color. How many? Zero? How many of you saw, you've seen it before, haven't you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's a good, that's the point. Um, how many of you saw one player on the black team left the stage? Yeah. Yeah. So some of you saw that. Yeah. Just so you know that I'm, I'm, I'm not fibbing here. Let's watch it again. About half missed the gorilla. About half missed the gorilla. Oh, sorry. Yep. Wait for it, watch. It's huge, it beats its chest. But do you see the, color, the curtain changing color? Yes. And the person on the black team left? Yep. No. 
Why is this about hermeneutics? And that's the monkey. <laughs> Why does this have to do with hermeneutics? That's right. So our hermeneutical lens is that guiding question. So I, if I would have told you all a gorilla is going to cross the screen, and when you see the gorilla cross the screen, raise your hand, you all would have gotten it. No one would have missed it. You ha if you would have had the gorilla on the brain, you would have seen the gorilla instantly. But because you were so focused, some of you at least, were so focused on, on counting, getting the answer right, of counting how many times the white team passed the ball, you missed something that was utterly obvious. And even if you got the gorilla, you missed the curtain, or you missed the person on the black team. That's how we read the Bible. Okay? You come to the Bible with certain questions. It's not how many times did the white team pass the ball, but it's something. It's something like that. And when you read looking for that, you probably find it. But maybe the person next to you reads with a different question. Maybe the person next to you reads with, where's the gorilla? This metaphor is breaking down, but you get the point, right? If you start with different commands, or if I said, raise your hand when the, color, when the curtain changes color, you all would have gotten it. Raise your hand when the person on the black team leaves, you all would have gotten it. I raise this just to create some awareness that the sorts of questions we bring with us to read the Bible change how we, what, what meaning we get out of it. That's not a bad thing. It's just something to be self-reflective about. It's something to realize that we have these different, so, so my goal would be not to get you to all spot all the things, but be aware of what questions you start with. What are you looking for? And then when you sit down next to someone at church and they're reading a text way differently than you, my encouragement is not to have your first assumption be, well, he's crazy, or he should be at a different church, but to be curious about them. Huh, I wonder what about their life Leads them to read this way. How did they grow up? Have they been hurt by the church? They come from a different religion? They come from a different culture, right? Start a conversation. Get to know other people's hermeneutical lens or way of reading. That actually would add a lot of richness and diversity to our community if we had those conversations. And, and if we were just aware that we bring these things with us to the text. Yes. Because I, I tend to look at it from a judgmental point of view that mm -hmm. God is too harsh and mm -hmm. I'd rather read the New Testament. And yet you brought things out which show the warmth and the kindness and the etc. So it's it helps expand our, our vision. Good. Thank you. It's it's all in there. Um, I'm just trying to change the questions. That, that's my, my job isn't to provide the answers, just to change the questions y'all ask about these texts. Okay, um, I actually have a handout. We don't have time to do this in an ideal world where I would have been much faster. We would have done this, but I just want to pass these out. Um, a former professor, actually of Old Testament, um, at New York Theological Seminary developed a little exercise for incoming seminary students called the Self-Inventory of Biblical Hermeneutics. That sounds fancy, but all he does is he just names, I think, 14 different things that tend to affect how we read scripture. And it's not, again, to critique them. It's just uh, what I would invite you to do, if you were interested, is to take this home, read through it, and just wonder to yourself, which one of these matters to me? 
right? Which one of these tends to affect how I read scripture? Is it my background? Is it my culture? Is it, I mean, there's a bunch of different things. It's not all cultural, right? There, there's uh, my church history, Bible translations, politics, gender, ethnicity, social class, education, community priorities, et cetera, et cetera. This is just a tool of self-discovery. It's not, um, it's not a way to get you to a certain place. Did everyone get one? For the most part. Okay. And I can, if you want, I can email this to you if you're interested. Just uh, send me a note and I'll send it out. Okay. 25 minutes, three theses to go. That's eight minutes and 20 seconds of thesis if my math is correct. We got it. Actually, no, I have to stop, I have to stop early. Okay, um, so it's, it's shorter than that. Um, but we're going to get there. The last three theses, 10, 11, and 12, all have to do with biblical authority. Now, a class on biblical authority would, one, one could use a class on biblical authority in its own right. And in many regards, this whole course has been about, broadly speaking, biblical authority. The authority of scripture has been, and I think always will be and should be, a key issue for the Christian church in this and every age. But how we conceive of biblical authority, what does it mean for the Bible to be an authority in our life? Our tradition, Presbyterian tradition, has long affirmed that the Bible is an authority, authority in matters of faith and life. Uh, we do not want to give an inch on that, I would argue. And many churches have given a yard on that. Um, the problem is, though, I think there's also some uh, unhelpful models of biblical authority out there. I don't question that people want the Bible to be authority. I think that's a must, uh, personally. But I think we don't always have the best models of thinking about what it means for the Bible to be authoritative. And I want to really, um, there's really three, there's two and a half here that I want to point out. Um, and I, and I'll, um, I, I try to uh, frame them, uh, well, you'll see. First, thesis 10. WWJD is not always the right question. WWJD is not always the right question. What is WWJD an acronym for, everyone? What would Jehoshaphat do? No. What would Jesus do, right? That would be a different sort of question. Now, that's not the question I'm proposing, but what would Jesus do, right? Um, a very, very, very popular question, slogan. We've seen these letters everywhere, of course, from those wristbands, uh, over 20 million, I think, have been sold, uh, last I checked. Uh, stickers, t-shirts, posters, devotional calendars, stuffed animals, even the name of a movie adapted from a book is called WWJD, as you can see here. Starring, of course, John Snyder, who is better known for being um, Bo Duke in the Dukes of Hazard movie. His career has taken a different turn. Um, anyway, we, these letters and the questions that lie behind them are ubiquitous in American culture. I would even say not even just in American Christian culture. I would just say in American culture, period. Someone who has never darkened the door of a church, I bet knows WWJD, is my guess. Most do. Where does this come from? Does anyone know? Does anyone know the history? Haha, <laughs> excellent. It is. I'll unpack that. Um, 
Where does this phrase come from? It, now, it, there's a couple different, it's a disputed history. I, this is just a little kind of historical trivia for you, but I thought you might enjoy it. It might go all the way back to a, a book written in Latin by Thomas Akempis between 1418 and 1427 called Imitatio Christi, the imitation of Christ. He doesn't use this exact phrase of heart because he's not writing in English, but he's talking about something different or something very similar, kind of imitation of Christ. What would Jesus do? Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher in the late 20th, uh, 19th century, um, uh, in London, used the phrase, what would Jesus do, in quotation marks several times in a sermon he, ga- sermon he gave on June 28, 1891, and he credits Thomas Akempis with this idea. But the real source of this goes back to a book in 1896 by Charles Sheldon, and the book is called In His Steps, and the subtitle of that book is, What Would Jesus Do? Now, here's kind of the gist of the story. Um, in this novel, well, here's one vignette. In this novel, a homeless man hears a group of Christians singing in a church, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my days, all my hours. And as the pastor leaves the prayer service, the homeless man approaches him and says, it seems to me there's an awful lot of trouble in the world that somehow wouldn't exist if all the people who sing such songs went and lived them out. I suppose I don't understand, but what would Jesus do, the homeless man asks. Is that what you mean by following his steps? It seems to me sometimes as if the people in the big churches had good clothes and nice houses to live in and money to spend for luxuries and could go away on summer vacations and all that, while the people outside the churches, thousands of them, I mean, die in tenements and walk the streets for jobs and never have a piano or a picture in the house and grow up in misery and drunkenness and sin. The rest of the book uh, has a series of vignettes in each of which involves the phrase, but what would Jesus do? This book became wildly popular um, and this phrase with it became wildly popular. It actually sparked what became known as the social gospel movement espoused by Walter Rauschenbusch, whose grandson I worked with. Uh, when I uh, served in the Office of Religious Life at Princeton. Um, but, but this phrase really became popular in the 1990s in a church in Holland, Michigan, uh, the Calvary Reformed Church, when a youth pastor had been using this phrase and in kind of instructing um, uh, his youth, and he wanted to somehow get the word out. And so he talked to his, uh, I think it was his brother-in-law, uh, who'd had like a little advertising business, or, uh, and they produced a hundred bracelets with the letters WWJD. And uh, within nine years, over 20 million of those bracelets had been produced and sold, not to mention all the other stuff. So that's just a little um, kind of trivia about where this comes from. But here's the real question. What does it mean? Paul. <laughs> Great question. I don't know. I hope a lot of youth mission trips, <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> what does it mean? What is it trying to get us to do? How is it trying to get us to think? Okay. Okay. Good. So kind of. Oh, sorry. There's my Charles. Yeah. Yeah, how do we react? What does it really mean to live out this Christian life, right? Not just to know the Bible or know theology or know Christian history, but what does it look to live in his steps, to use Charles Kelvin's term? 
There's a moral imperative here. It's not just about knowledge or right doctrine. This is about orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, right knowledge. Orthopraxy, right practice. This is about right practice. There's a moral imperative to act in a way that demonstrates the love of Jesus. Um, it's putting faith in action, if you will, and it's applying the teachings of Jesus to all aspects of life, not just kind of what hymns do we sing, but it's the idea that the teachings of Jesus actually pervade all of our lives, or should inform all of our lives. Um, look, all of this is great. I don't have a, a quibble at all with any of this, and, um, you know, I, I doubt someone's going to tell me, oh, you're living too much like Jesus. I mean, if that were our problem, if our problem was that we were living, if we just got it down so right, WWJD, that's not it. Live like Jesus. Please live like Jesus. Please live in this way. Please put your faith in action. This is not at all my quibble, but I think, here's what I want to say, and this is about authority. There are some limits to WWJD. There are some limits to WWJD. First, just to be honest, we don't always know what Jesus would do, right? The Gospels give us a very limited snapshot of Jesus' life and teaching. And so we don't always know exactly what Jesus would do. And yet if you go to a good Christian bookstore, you will find WWJ eat, drive, drink, raise a child, buy a house, etc., etc., etc. I don't know what Jesus would drive. I truly do not know what Jesus would drive. I don't know if Jesus would be vegan or gluten-free or something else. I don't know because we don't know, right? There's a limit to this. And, and, and one potential problem is when we kind of, we have some soapbox we want to stand on. There's some cause or thing, and we just say, we, stack the, we slap the WWJD sticker on it. But no, it doesn't work that way. There's a lot we don't know about how Jesus lived. I don't know what Jesus would do in, in Atlanta traffic. I mean, I like to think he's nicer than me in Atlanta traffic, more Christian than me in Atlanta traffic, but I don't know. I don't know what Jesus would do if he were on his way to church and he saw, you know, his neighbor in need raking leaves. How would Jesus adjudicate whether it was best to come and preach his sermon at First Pres or to stop and help you know, the, the single mom uh, of, uh, of a two-year-old rake leaves. I, I don't know. That sounds like a hard decision. I'm not sure what Jesus would do. I would be curious, but I can't say that I know. So there's a limit to the question because we have limited knowledge, of course, of what Jesus would do. Second, wisdom is needed to move from principle to practice. The Gospels, more so than giving this model of what Jesus does in every situation, I think it mirrors for us principles of living. I think we can read the Gospels and say, Jesus is about this. He's about love for the outcast. He's about forgiveness. He's about scripture, right? So we can draw very clear principles from what the Gospels teach us about Jesus. But there's a step to take from the principles found in the Gospels to the practice of our everyday lives. And that takes a lot of wisdom. And I just need to admit that very wise people could negotiate that terrain from principle to practice in different ways. And we just need to acknowledge that, that it's not always clear how to move from principle to practice. I think we always should be principle-minded in our practice, but we always should be humble enough to know that principles and practice are different. And there might be more than one way to get from a principle of love, say, for the outcasts, 
to different policies on immigration, right? I don't know. I, I'm not running for election. I don't know what's the best thing to do for uh, immigration. I know that Jesus models a principle of love for outcasts. That's absolutely clear. There's no way to argue against that. But what does that mean for 2015 politics? I, I don't know. I'm open to hear. I'm open to discuss. But I'm not going to slap a WWJD sticker on it because it's complicated. Third, and this is the most important point because it moves beyond WWJD, the Bible is sometimes descriptive rather than prescriptive. Here's the problem with WWJD, right? If we read the Bible always with that in mind, we always are assuming that the stuff in the Bible is meant to tell us how to act. So everything in the Bible is do this, right? Here's an example. You go do it. I think it kind of works with Jesus. I think the stuff Jesus does should be relatively prescriptive for our life, right? But that's not how the whole Bible works. Sometimes the Bible describes stuff that we shouldn't do, right? Sometimes the Bible describes a bunch of stuff that God ends up criticizing, condemning, calling idolatry, standing against. And if we're not careful, we could read those stories that are just descriptive, if we take them as prescriptive, we can start to live a really unchristian life. Like, there's a lot of, we've talked about some of these. There's a lot of stories about King David that are not prescriptive. At least I hope they're not. Right? There's a lot of stories about violence, particularly in the Old Testament, that are not prescriptive. That is, are the Israelites violent? Yeah. Are they violent in the name of God? Absolutely. Is God on the side of that? Absolutely not. And the Old Testament is clear about that. But yet, we can make the mistake in reading those stories as prescriptive. Thus saith the Lord. Well, yeah, thus saith the Lord, but it doesn't, it's not always in affirmation of what we find in the text. So we need to have space to say, not everything in the Bible is meant to be prescriptive for how we live today. Um, so, yes, WWJD, be accused of being too much like Jesus, but um, recognize its limits. Thesis 11. Now we've got to move quick. Inerrancy is not the most helpful model of biblical authority. And here I do have to be very uh, quick on this point. I'm going to return to the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which we talked about last week. And the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which is an evangelical statement about the authority of the Bible that we introduced last week, is very clear about what they think is at stake with this idea of inerrancy. Scripture is going to define it, and then it's going to say why it matters. Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teachings, no less than what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited. Note what, this is the important part. It's saying you can't have an authoritative Bible without the idea of inerrancy. Do you catch that? The Bible can't be authoritative, according to the Chicago Statement, unless the Bible is inerrant. Uh, in any way, uh, limited or disregarded, or made relative to the view of truth, contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. The Chicago Statement draws a very sharp line here around inerrancy. In fact, I would say the Chicago Statement makes an inerrancy the most important Christian belief 
that one could ever have. Because if the Bible's authority rests on inerrancy, then everything rests on inerrancy. Um, it was 1978, uh, a group of about 300 evangelical leaders and pastors gathered in a Chicago church to come up with a statement on uh, a variety of things related to the Bible, but it gets back to inerrancy in almost every turn. Uh, and this statement has been affirmed um, and uh, reiterated since by evangelical churches. I won't name the school, but I, in, a, in a, uh, a couple years back, I applied for an Old Testament job at a school and I had to sign on to this statement in order to apply. I didn't. Um, so, here's the question for us. Do we have to give up authority? Or do we have to think authority is tied to inerrancy? I think no to both. We can have a powerfully, meaningfully authoritative scripture, I think we must, and yet not tether it to inerrancy. Inerrancy is a problematic, and I would add, ironically, highly unbiblical concept. And I just want to point out three quick reasons for it, all of which deserve more elaboration than I will give it, but all of which we have essentially covered in this course already. So I'm going to connect the problems of inerrancy back to theses we've already talked about. First, the idea of inerrancy makes a genre mistake. It makes a genre mistake. It assumes the Bible sets out to be inerrant about everything. Inerrant about creation in a scientific way. Inerrant about ancient Near Eastern Iron Age history from a modern historical perspective. It just assumes, well, that's what the Bible intended to do and to be. To be scientifically inerrant about creation and to be historically inerrant about the workings of Iron Age history. It's a genre mistake. That's not what the Bible sets out to do. That's not me trying to throw authority under the bus. It's just me reading the Bible according to its own terms, something the Chicago Statement invites us to do. Genesis 1 is not intended as a scientific manual. 1 Kings is not presented as an exhaustive history of ancient Israel. To hold the Bible to an inerrant standard of history or science is to project onto it an unbiblical standard of truth. Right? I'm not trying to undermine what the Bible says. I'm just saying, let's think about what the Bible is trying to do with this literature. Authority, in the end, is domain-specific. Authority is domain-specific. I might ask Stephen Hawking some really good questions about the origins of the universe or astrophysics, and he might give very authoritative answers. But if I asked him about the best way to make chicken parm, he may or may not know. That is, he might be an authority in one thing, an unquestioned authority in one thing, and not necessarily an unquestioned authority in something else. I would say something very true is a, something very similar is true about the Bible. It is an authority in matters of faith and practice related to that faith, I would say unequivocally, but it's not trying to be an authority about astrophysics. It's not trying to be an authority about evolutionary biology. Biblical authors didn't think they were trying to do that, and neither should we. That's the first point. The second is that inerrancy demands rigid internal consistency. See Thesis 3 when we talk about the Bible being a library and not a book. In, in order for inerrancy to make sense, and actually the Chicago Statement goes on to say this, that in order for inerrancy to make sense, every single thing said in the Bible has to be 
in consistent with everything else in the Bible. That is, there can't be any wiggle room. There can't be any different perspectives. Everything the Bible has to say has to be from the same exact perspective. The Chicago Statement spells this out. Apparently, they haven't read Ecclesiastes, Job, and Proverbs. <laughs> they just haven't read the biblical literature. The Bible doesn't mean to give a single perspective about everything. It actually is meant to give us multiple perspectives about multiple things. Just read the literature. This is not an external manual. I just want the Chicago writers to just take the Bible more seriously. That's, that's the irony of this. I'm actually just asking these writers who affirm inerrancy, just take the Bible more seriously, and you won't arrive in inerrancy. More to say about all this. Third, inerrancy overlooks the fact that the Bible is a book with a history. See thesis number five. Um, we do not possess the original uh, version of the book of Isaiah. We don't have it. What we have is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy some 1,500 years after, say, Isaiah wrote. Right? There's a long history between the copy we have and what was originally written. Now, through a conversation that goes beyond this course, we can compare various copies of the different uh, parts of the Bible that we have, and we can know with a lot of degree of certainty that what we have in our Bibles today looks very, 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 very similar to the most ancient documents of the, of the Bible. That, what that means, here's, here's what it comes down to. We have a lot of confidence that the Bible hasn't changed, either accidentally or purposely, over the years. But we also know it's not exactly identical. We have copies of the book of Jeremiah in Greek that are one-eighth longer than the copies of the book of Jeremiah in Hebrew. We have versions of the story of uh, David and Goliath in Hebrew that are dramatically different than stories about David and Goliath in the Greek version of the Old Testament. There are differences. We have versions of the Gospel of Mark that end without a resurrection. Our oldest versions of Mark end without a resurrection. But we have other versions of Mark that end with the last, what is it, like 20 verses-ish? where there's post-resurrection experiences and things like that. So, which version's inerrant? Which one? We don't have the original. We don't know, we can't check. So for that minor reason, inerrancy just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to the Bible. It doesn't make sense to the fact that the Bible is a book with a history. Um, so my encouragement here is to throw out inerrancy, but to keep the authority. That's what the church has always done. Inerr inerrancy is not something the church has believed in until about 30 years ago. And even then, it wasn't the whole church. It was a very specific type of, of Christianity. I think they mean very well. Mean very, very well. And I want to fight with them for biblical authority. I just don't want to tie my belief in authority to inerrancy because it's a sinking ship. And I don't want my authority to sink. And there's a different way to do it. And that's another class. Finally, 12, and 12 is about a 30-second thesis. You don't have to be an expert to read the Bible for all of its worth. I have tried in this class to make reading the Bible more difficult, and I hope I've succeeded. But there can be an unintended side effect of this. We could reject the idea that the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it, but this is not a great alternative. 
The Bible says a lot of things. It's really difficult to understand, so I better let someone else read it. That's a bad alternative. If that's where you've ended up from this class, please read Thesis 12. That's not the point. You don't have to be an expert. I do think we need to do some work together. I do think Christians need to be engaged intellectually through education to strive together to learn how to read these texts more faithfully, more fully, in a more honest and self-reflective fashion. I hope that is what discipleship means for you. I hope that is a process you go through for your whole life. I hope you include me in it from time to time because it's fun for me and I enjoy being with you all. But you don't need to be an expert. I do think, though, it's helpful sometimes to have a few good resources. Now, those resources might be your Sunday school class or your small group or your men's group or your women's group or whatever else it might be. But I've also left you on your tables a very, 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 very short list of resources. Some study Bibles, Bibles that are just have good notes in them. That if you just want to have one thing you read, these are great study Bibles. Um, some uh, general Bible commentaries, ones I really like and think are great for lay audiences. There are some canon-specific Bible commentaries, Old Testament and New Testament ones. There are, um, I call them specific focus Bible commentaries, commentaries that emphasize certain hermeneutical perspectives. There's the Global Bible Commentary, Susan, which I've recommended to your group. Uh, there's the Women's Bible Commentary, written by uh, many of my professors. There's a literary guide to the Bible. Um, and then finally, there are some general reference materials. There are millions more that one might add to this list, but my encouragement is start here, because these are good ones, and there are a lot of bad ones out there, by the way. There's a lot of bad ones out there, particularly on the internet. Um, these are good ones. We also have all of these, almost all of these, I think, in the Christian Ed Suite, that you can come and sit and have a cup of coffee and read these or take them out. We will buy these for you if you want them and can't afford them. This is just, it's not the end of the conversation, but if you're looking to continue the conversation, these I recommend to you as a, as a decent place to do. Yeah, Paul. It is. Um, the Christian Ed Suite. What's that? We, uh, we have, a, a, we've kind of created a little resource nook in the back of our Christian Ed office that we hope is really the center of where uh, small group leaders and Sunday school leaders go to get resources, to, to find um, uh, content. The library continues to exist uh, for the time being, and um, they have different, they have a wider set of resources, but we're trying to gather together this sort of resource. Um, so if it's, you know, the kind of the, 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 the next, the hallway that Tony's office is in, if you're familiar with that, it kind of comes up from the vestry, the back of the sanctuary, and goes out toward, it basically, the hallway runs into the mustard seed. There, on the left, if you're going up towards the mustard seed, the first door on your left is the Christian Ed Suite, and back there, you'll find my office, and Anne Henley's office, and Allison Cochran's office, and Dottie Kitch. Hitchcock's office, but also a little resource nook that we are beginning to fill out. So come stop by, have a cup of coffee with me, uh, read a book, ask a question. Um, we would love to have you. Um, it is about, okay, it's 8.44.58, which means I'm technically I finished on time. Um, what I would love if you haven't already done so, I would so much appreciate if you would even if only briefly fill out this little uh, course survey. They're anonymous. Um, I have extra here if you need them.
don't know if they got around to decide. If you have two extra minutes, um, I would appreciate your feedback. If you don't, I understand. Uh, again, we can't leave until the desserts are gone, so we're here anyway. Um, but mostly what I want to say as you guys wrap up is thank you. There is a lot going on in all of our lives. We are in the middle of Atlanta traffic. And to get here on a Wednesday night in the midst of everything else in our lives at 7.30 and to stay to 8.45 and not fall asleep is in its own right commendable. But the fact that you're taking on the challenge of thinking about biblical interpretation is all the more commendable. I am honored and grateful for your presence, and I hope you'll uh, come back for future Theology Matters courses. Thank you. Thank you.